Um, the Spirit-Filled Church, that's been our theme for the last uh, 10 weeks now, I think. And uh, we're going to continue that on today. And I'm going to tell you that, uh, according to this passage, the Spirit-Filled Church should have one eye on Jesus, one eye on the New Jerusalem, and open to the possibility of ending up absolutely anywhere. And I'll explain that as we go along, but that's how I'm going to hang it all on. That's what I'm going to hang it on, right? So last week, uh, Christoph's sermon covered the conversion of Cornelius, a Roman soldier, and of his family and his household. And I'm sure that any of you who were there for last week's sermon, when you're listening to, to Billy there speaking, um, you saw that for some reason... Today's reading includes that same story, almost, in fact, word for word, the first half of it. And there are some differences, actually, but essentially it's the exact same story. And in the rest of the chapter is kind of a more intense version of what happens to Cornelius. See, what I mean is, instead of one non-Jewish man and his family coming to faith in Jesus, a whole city of non-Jewish people come to faith in Jesus. Well, not the whole city, but you know what I mean, right? And so it's more or less true to say that the big point of chapter 11, this chapter that we're in here, and the big point of chapter 10, that is kind of the same. That's the gospel is not just for the Jews, it's for the whole world. And some of the application of that point that Christoph brought out to us, uh, which was that because of the gospel, uh, we have to take, or because the gospel is open to everyone, then there should be no barriers on where we go with it or who we decide gets to hear that gospel. And on the back of that then, we shouldn't be surprised by the people that God brings into our lives. Peter was surprised. And if we are following the lead of the Spirit, so also will we be. Furthermore, and I might have been dreaming this, but I think he made this point, sectarianism, prejudice towards other groups of people, racism, that just can't be a part of our lives. We're called to love and to talk about Jesus, the Messiah, to everybody. Right. That's some of the stuff that Christoph brought to our attention last week, right? But if that's the case, if these two chapters are telling the same story, if that just, uh, or if this one today just happens on a, on a larger scale than the other, should I then just, you know, say, well, you heard Christoph last week, that's it? No. For two reasons. Firstly, this story of what happens here in this city called Antioch, where the gospel, the good news story, at the heart of which Jesus, who is God, died on our half to reconcile us to God. This story, which changes lives wherever it goes, begins its march out into the furthest corners of the world from this city. And that does have something to teach us about how we do ministry in Belfast that is a little different to the story about Cornelius. And secondly, these two chapters, or this chapter in particular, well, no, these two chapters, they give us an opportunity to step a little bit back and look at where these events here in Antioch fit into the bigger story of the whole Bible. Now, when I say opportunity, I'm not, you know, I'm not just doing it for the crack, like I'm... Um, 
But what we'll see is that one of the main reasons that the gospel takes off in Antioch is intimately connected to why and how we should do likewise. We'll talk about that a little bit later. How, sorry, how and why we should do likewise in spreading the gospel. Firstly, right, let's look at what happened in this city in Antioch. I don't know. No, it's all right. Uh, Antioch is about a couple of hours north of Jerusalem. Um, it's actually closer to Tarsus, where Paul came from, and there's an island off the coast, Cyprus, where Barnabas came from. And to recap, what happens uh, is that so far, most of the evangelism done in Acts is, uh, if not all, bar two instances, was between Jewish believers and Jews. But then after Stephen's death in chapter 7, the early church experiences this uh, persecution, and the church scatters all over the place, right? Well, not all of them, but a lot of them leave Jerusalem. And as a result of this, some disciples end up in Antioch, where they start telling the gospel to non-Jewish residents, right? You know this story? You probably know this story. And it God blessed their efforts. So when the Jerusalem church hear about this, they send Barnabas up to check it out. Barnabas goes uh, and he sees, and he sees that there's loads of people being converted. He thinks it's great. At some stage, Barnabas goes looking for Saul, who will become the Apostle Paul. He comes, and the work just grows and grows, to the point where the church in Antioch actually starts to support the church in Jerusalem when there was a famine in Jerusalem. Right? All good. So to sum it up, it starts off with a few men evangelizing, and it would appear that a kind of a, a revival breaks out. And eventually it gets to the stage where this city, to which people are sent to do the work of the gospel, itself becomes a place where people are sent out to do the work of the Lord. So it was planted, started, grew, became mature. It's good stuff. And in fact, we know from church history that Antioch became a very big center for early Christianity. Right? So, that, um, that's, that's happening there. But what does that have to do with us here today in Belfast? Well, consider this, right? When Barnabas went to this city, at the time that he did, it was the third biggest city in the Roman Empire. Um, and it was kind of like an ancient Amsterdam. It was known in the Roman Empire. There was a phrase, I don't know, I don't speak Latin, but it was a phrase about how Antioch was basically a very immoral place. It was like a common phrase they used. And you know if the Romans are saying that this place was immoral, then it really must have been, right? Um, and I think the reason for that level of immorality was that five miles outside of the town, there was this big religious center where they worshipped these... Uh, they had a temple for two gods, Artemis and Apollo. And... Um, Prostitution was rampant there. Prostitution was one of the ways that you worshipped these gods. It was also a very, very multicultural place. Apparently it had 18 distinct ethnic areas, which is something, and, and something that we're, we're familiar to us here, is that apparently they were separa- separated by high walls when it was first built. Because the guy uh, who built it, I think his name was Seleucus or something, he realized that to have all these people together be a lot of fights. So they built these massive walls. But they had common areas as well, though, so it wasn't like they were totally separated off from each other. Um, yes, each group apparently lived in their own section. But because the rulers understood, that's how you, you keep the peace, you keep people apart. So your home was where you slept, 
was clear you kept your stuff, your animals. But there was a lot of common areas in the city where the trade and the rest of life happened. Um, it had a population of over half a million. It's a bit bigger than Belfast, which you're probably saying to yourself, well, it's not that big. London, Paris, no, they're big cities. Yes, but that's true. But I, the reading that I was doing about it, it said to me that area-wise Antioch was fairly small, but it had a population density that was twice of Manhattan. Manhattan and New York. And remember, though, New York builds, you know, what, hundreds, hundred stories into the sky, but Antioch can only go five because they didn't have, they weren't that advanced. So they were jam-packed in. And even that doesn't give a full picture of what life was there like because most families lived in one room. It, everything that had to be done was done in that room in front of everyone else. And also, there was no middle class. It was just you were either rich or you were poor. You were either a slave or you were free. Toilet facilities were nothing like what we were used to, mostly because water could only be brought into a room in a jug. There was no taps, there was no pipes. So you wouldn't be wasting your water on washing yourself. And besides, they had no soap. So to bring it all together, right, this city was densely packed in with many different people groups in it. So it was, it was very, very multicultural, very pagan, although there was, there was a, a Jewish community there, but otherwise very pagan, full of poverty, disease, and dirt. Right? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Are you getting a picture of the place? Good. So why am I telling you all this? Well, I'm doing so because I want you to see that Antioch was ripe for the gospel. It was ripe in two ways. Firstly, it, it just completely lacked privacy. It was not a place that you could hide being a Christian. It was physically impossible. I'm told as well that the streets were like, you know, this wide. So if you leaned out the window, you could talk to the guy on the other street. Everyone was right up in your face all the time. And if you had a big family and you're all in the same room, I mean, you, you get the picture. Secondly, it was physically impossible to hide your face because it was obvious that you weren't going to the temple. It was obvious to everyone that you didn't join in in all the strife and the fighting between the groups. Instead, you tried to love all 18 different groups. And we got problems with two here. You stood out in other ways. For example, one of the things I was reading was that um, archaeologists unearthed some uh, letters from this place at this time. And oftentimes, archaeologists unearth very mundane stuff. And they found this letter. I, I don't know what the content of it was, say, from me to a friend in Cork or something. And there was a line in it at the, at the end, kind of a throwaway line, and it said, um, when the child is born, if it's a girl, kill it. Now imagine you're a Christian living in that environment, right? You're living in a building where you know that the Wahhabis are having a child, and if it's a girl, they're going to kill it, right? Are you going to let that happen? No, you're not. You're a Christian. The gospel has taught you that all people are made in God's image. That murder is wrong. And you're to love everyone. You're not going to let that child be murdered. And when you do that, everybody will know. In fact, they will always know because more than likely that child is going to grow up with you. And they want to know, 
Why are you doing this? And then you'll tell them. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that the gospel is only about being a good neighbor. No way. That's not the case. But the gospel does have social consequences. And in Antioch, that stuff was like throwing petrol on a fire. Here's how one historian talks about it. Um, this is, he's talking about early Christianity. Christianity was a revitalization movement in the urban Greco-Roman world. It revitalized life in cities. It provided new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with the urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christians offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christians offered a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. To cities faced with epidemics, fires, earthquakes, Christianity offered effective medical services. And later on, the same guy says, No wonder the early Christian missionaries were so warmly received. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greek or Roman cities more tolerable. Can you see why this fate would take off? If you're living in hell, and someone not only talks to you about heaven, but helps you to experience a slice of it, well, that's something that people are going to be real interested right there. Thomas Chalmers, Chambers, was a Church of Scotland minister, and he wrote a lot of stuff about poverty um, and solutions for poverty, I think in, sometime in the 18th century. And after he died, someone was asked of his contribution to the city he lived in, I think it was Glasgow, somebody could correct me later on. And the response was, he warmed it. He warmed it. Do you, do any of us, because of the outworkings of our faith, bring warmth to our city? The problem, a problem for us today in Belfast, Christians here in Belfast, in East Belfast, is that our context is not nearly as dire as it was in Antioch. Oh, there are problems, all right. <laughs> but they're not to the same extent that they were there. And also, um, despite all the wrangling that's been going on in, 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 in Stormont for the last while uh, over welfare reform, the fact remains that we, we actually have a welfare system. They didn't in Antioch. It was pointed out to me once that uh, in a Western democracy... Even a homeless person has potential access to shelter, food, and other services that puts them in a better position than a lot of the poor people in the rest of the world. So we, we, we just live in a totally different standard. And what I'm trying to say is that even though there are plenty of problems here today in our city, it was, it was just nothing like it was in Antioch. And the issue here then for us is that Belfast doesn't present the same kinds of opportunities for witnessing to the truth of the gospel in the same way that it did in Antioch. We were at a disadvantage. And while I'm at it, let, uh, let me add this. Antioch was divided uh, between the different ethnic groups. That's true. But I'm led to believe that this division only took place at home, at night. During the rest of life, you were, you were forced to mix with everyone else. 
Now, I don't know how much of a stereotype this is and the extent to which it's true, but it, it, I keep hearing, and it does appear to me, that there's a lot of people in our city who can go to all three levels of school, can go to work and retire without interacting at all much with people from outside their own group. Life in Belfast feeds that reality. Am I right? Yeah. If I'm wrong about anything, tell me at the door. I think it's time that I got a bit of criticism at the door, you know. I've heard about it. So, anyway, not only then does Belfast not have the same obvious needs as Antioch did, but there are aspects of our life here, some of which are good, but which actually work against us. The way Belfast is set up currently, there is far less natural ways in which people can see our fate in action. And look, let me be clear. The the fact that we are not living in an immoral septic tank is a good thing. You know what I mean? But that means that if we want to tell people the gospel, if we want to love people where they're at, we got to go out and find what they need. We got to make the decision to live amongst them. And that's not an easy thing in this city. So what do we do? Well, I'm going to, do, I'm going to split, split, split ye crudely in two, right? This, this isn't neat categories. But in, in, in Kirkpatrick, we talk a good bit about our front lines. And uh, I've really grown to appreciate that, actually. And you know, uh, these are the areas of your life where you do meet other people, okay? So some of you, though, are in a period of life where right now your front lines are very static. Yeah, maybe you've got a couple of kids, young kids. Maybe you're in a very busy period in your career. Maybe you've got health or money or family issues that are just curtailing everything you're doing at the moment. If that's the case, your front lines are quite narrow. And you might be thinking, oh, no, here's another thing that i got to do. No, 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 no. Uh, The Spirit convicts us. The Spirit leads us, but he never weighs us down. That kind of heavy, often present guilt, that's not the Spirit, that's the devil. But anyway, even though you're in a stage where um, you, the people who are in your front lines, or sorry, uh, even though you are in the stage you are in, sorry, where you don't meet that too many people, and your front lines are all static, um, is the Spirit leading you to go towards them? People are different to you, but your fears are keeping you back. Is the Spirit leading you to use some of your time, or the money, or the power? that you have to make their life better, to get to know them, despite the fact that they are totally different, maybe pagan, maybe immoral, maybe hard to be around. Um, I bet he is. The Spirit's always up to crazy stuff like that. Some of you, though, and this is the, the crude splitting I'm talking about, some of you have got a lot more freedom and flexibility with your movements. Your front lines are not so static. You've got a lot more choice in life. Um, And I say the exact same thing to you. But the only difference I would add in is, is the Spirit pushing you to move? Whether it be to live where you live, or where you work, or where you get educated, to move somewhere where you will stand out. 
I was, I was very disappointed. Am I allowed to be disappointed? I think so. I was disappointed recently to learn that in the last two years, um, for students to go to Queen's and live away from home, the, I think I'm correct in saying this, the lower Lisbon Road has become a place where, where Protestants go to and the Holy Lands is for Catholics. Now, there, in my experience, as many spiritually dead Protestants as there are spiritually dead Roman Catholics, but I'm going to guess that the reason so many Christians end up living on the Lisbon Road side of town has got little to do with missional possibilities. I mean, I'm being cynical, you know. If, uh, please tell me if I'm wrong. But uh, for another example, me and South America have... Um, We've lived off of Templemore Avenue since we came up here, more or less. It's known to be a very loyalist area. Uh, it sees a lot of parades, which I've actually enjoyed, to tell the truth. But <laughs> there's a good few mu- murals, flags, colours. Although, in fairness, we're in a cul-de-sac that's, that's off it. It's a new development, 15 years old. It might as well be out in the countryside. But I don't know if there's any locals in there at all. But whenever we tell people that we lived there, and I haven't got this reaction from Kirkpatrick and Ferris, but whenever I tell people, oh, I live off Templemore Avenue, they're like, all right, yeah. um, how's that going? Are you okay? <laughs> you know? Now, I can understand, you know, to a degree that you're, you're concerned and, and uh, there's, there's trouble down there, and particularly for some of my accent, that might be a big issue, but it's the best place I've ever lived. I could have lived out here, or we could have lived over in West Belfast, be no problem. But if I hadn't, we hadn't moved there, we wouldn't have had half the experiences that we've had in the last two years. You see, when, when you follow the spirit, or though we weren't really following the spirit, we were following um, beaver lettings. But uh, <laughs> then we'll just say the spirit was working through beaver lettings. You know, uh, when you follow the spirit, the, the he uses the gospel in you to change you, make you a better person, bring you into places where you have all these experiences that you wouldn't have thought you had two and a half years ago. Anyway, the point is the gospel took off in Antioch for a number of reasons. <clears throat> they had some godly people in there. They had two, in particular, good men. only place the scripture says someone's good, Barnabas. I think. Good men, spirit-filled men, who are willing to do the work. But the conditions were perfect for faith in Jesus to flourish because of the way, sorry, because of the way Antioch Antioch is. But if we're going to have similar effects here in Belfast, we've got to choose to associate with the pagans and the immoral and the needy and the different. It won't always be easy. It opens up to temptations, and you might even give in to those temptations. It'll open you up to stresses, which you've never faced, but the Spirit goes with us always. And, you know, it's like we're saying, you'll see all sorts of fruit coming out of you that you never saw before. And, one last thing. Let's go back to the start. Why does Luke repeat the story of Cornelius? Well, the reason is that it is so important what happens here to the wider story of the Bible. You see, much of the Bible 
is pointing towards the day when non-Jews will be included in the promises of salvation. And this case of Cornelius, he's not just a non-Jew, he's a Roman centurion. You know, beyond Caesar himself, is there any greater symbol of the Roman Empire than a Roman centurion? This guy is like the epitome of a Gentile. So his conversion becomes a test case par excellence of Gentile entry to salvation. So they, they, they go over it with a fine tooth comb. But there's more to it than that, you see. There's more happening here. Flick with me, if you can, to the very, very start of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And he says... A very famous passage. And God said, verse 26, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You see there where he says he's made us in his image? There's a lot of discussion about that. But the meaning of it is to be found in the verse itself. What does it say there? It says we are to rule over the fish, the animals, and the earth. In other words, being made in the image of God is connected to God's authority. It's connected to authority. We are his ruling representatives. As we go out all over the earth, we go out as representatives of God. Before uh, the Republic got independence, there used to be a representative Actually, before the Republic became a Republic, I think he was still there for a while, he used to be a guy who represented the king, and he was called the Lord Lieutenant. Am I right in saying that? I think I am. We are God's Lord Lieutenants over this earth. We represent the king. And, just hold that in your head, right? Look there at verse 15 of chapter 2. Just over the page. The Lord God, this is what it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. One little line, blink and you'll miss it. You see, we tend to look at the Garden of Eden as some kind of vegetarian, new age, hippie paradise, you know? And it kind of is, in a way. But actually, paradise is where God lived on earth. It's a, Eden is a form of a temple. And the reason that we call Eden and think of Eden as paradise is because God, our God, and man, us, lived together in harmony. That's what made a paradise. So, I know you're wondering, where am I going with all this, right? Just put it all together. The fact that we are God's Lord Lieutenants, we represented him. The fact that we are his, his priests, uh, we look after his temple, and the fact that he commanded us to multiply, in other words, to have children and to fill the earth, you add all of that together and you see that God's original plan was for us to build an earth with God at the center of it. In other words, to spread the Garden of Eden all over the planet. Have you heard this before? Spread the Garden of Eden all over the planet. That was the plan. It was the original idea, but you know it didn't work out. Something happened. Evil entered the world. The devil tempted us. 
And now instead of us ruling the world on God's behalf, Satan ruling it for a while. And we've been paying the price ever since. But, and this is where today's story comes in, God set things in motion to put his plan back in action. He didn't leave the earth totally. For a while his presence was found in the tabernacle. Then his presence was found in the temple. And then, of course, what replaced the temple? Jesus. And where does Jesus live? In us. So the plan is coming back again. And we're at this next stage in the plan to spread the presence of God all over the earth, just as it was originally intended. And just for completion's sake, uh, the story doesn't end with us. Um, Now, whether there's another part to be played by another temple in Israel, I don't know. Certainly a possibility. But I do know that at the end of Revelations in 21, it shows us this, this final picture of all of this. And it's this new Jerusalem, a city which will fill the entire earth, where everyone who has followed Jesus as their Lord will live and walk with God once more. Paradise will be here. And why am I telling you all that? I'm telling you all that because as the Spirit calls you to go out amongst your neighbours and friends and colleagues who don't follow Jesus, you'll face fear, maybe accusation, temptation. You'll feel inadequate, unprepared. But that's okay. Because despite all evidences to the contrary, you and I have been made to do this. Every single one of us is called and equipped to be God's representatives on this planet. We actually have an urge to go out. Because that's what we're made for. And as you see that Son of God, and sorry, as you see that the Son of God has made his home in you and is living in you, you will go and make your home alongside people and live alongside people who don't know anything about him. And you'll even do it willingly. So go. Spread the presence of God all over the place. Tell people that if they want the presence of God to live in them, if they want to become a temple of God themselves, if they want to live in the new Jerusalem, they need forgiveness. Love them. Tell them about forgiveness. Because right now, the devil rules this world. And the wrath of God is coming because of sin. And all of this, then, is why we keep one eye on the man himself and one eye on where we're going. And as I said at the start, you just never know where you're going to end up. That's it. Well, I'll pray. Father, thank you for whatever you've been doing here. Um, I ask your blessing on these words. I ask that you'd store us all up to greater faith and more obedience I ask that you give us eyes to see the places that you're leading us to and courage to go in that direction. In your name.